Welcome to the Contending for Christ Apologetics Podcast, where Danny seeks to empower believers to defend their faith. This fight is internal, defending against false teachings that are creeping into the church as well as our hearts and minds. It is also external, with believers needing to know how they can solidify and defend their beliefs. So sit back and relax as we contend for Christ. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm so glad that you've tuned in. And I've got a very special guest with us today. Uh, he's the uh, founder of the ministry Conversations Concerning Us. This is Brother Kenneth Marple. And he's someone that I really got to know through an apologetics group on Facebook. Uh, interesting fact is we share the same alma mater and we have uh, the same desires to get into Christian apologetics. And we both really see its usefulness, its necessity in today's society, which is something that a lot of Christians, maybe this is youth as well, but a lot of people within society do not see a need for Christian apologetics, or they believe that Christianity is based upon blind faith or whatever the case is. But we got to remember the first century Christians, the entirety of their faith was built upon one event, one mm -hmm. evidence, and that evidence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's great to have another brother on here that goes ahead and shares the same passion that I do. Like I said, he's from uh, Liberty University. He's got a bachelor's in religion and Christian counseling, and he's got a master's degree actually in Christian apologetics. He's also a published author for the Evangelical Review of Theology and Politics, and he's the founder, like I said, of Conversations Concerning Us Ministry. And he has a podcast as well as a blog bearing the same name. So I recommend and encourage you all, after this episode, go check it out. It's at conversationsconcerningus.blogspot.com. Kenneth, welcome to C4C. Yes, sir. Thank you. Feel free. Share just a little bit about yourself, maybe your ministry, just anything about who is Kenneth Marpon? How did you really get involved in apologetics? Well, I uh, kind of jumped into it later in life. I actually, um, when I first started college, I wanted to be a music composition person. I just wanted to write music all the time. Um, and then I met my wife, we got married, kind of started doing some stuff. Uh, after I think we were married for like two years, I just felt the need to ground my faith in something more than just you know you know my personal religious experience i wanted to know reasons why i believe is it sound to believe what i believe and mm -hmm. then i figured if i took that path it would help ground me more and make me a stronger spiritual leader within my house mm -hmm. um as far as getting into apologetics and the ministry i started it's kind of been a slow role in certain things uh, kind of brought it about. I know that somebody reached out to me um, from Nigeria and wanted me to mm. kind of tutor them. Uh, and he knew several people that um, he wanted me to teach and to help guide them along through apologetics, a person I actually met through the Facebook group. Um, so I've been doing that for probably about a year. And then before that, you know, I had just had a desire to kind of write and put some good, decent content out there that was on a reachable level to the common person. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where I'm coming from. Global impact right there. That's amazing, man. Yeah, it was, I was pretty humbled and uh, that they reached out to me and wanted me to teach them. I was like, why, 
why me, you know, kind of thing. And they always kind of give me praise. And I'm like, hey, in my opinion, you guys are far better than I am because I've got it easy living in America. I don't, oh, you know what I mean? No, definitely. And that humbleness and humility is definitely something to something to admire. Definitely. Well, thank you for the apologetics ministry and just especially just being a willing vessel to help those. And one thing that I've learned uh, throughout my ministries is the fact, and I think it was Leonard Ravenhill, who is like the British equivalent of Billy Graham. He had once Mm -hmm. said, I would rather have 10 people that want God than 10,000 people playing church. And so (laughs) it always encourages me whenever uh, I look at the numbers and I look at the people and not all of us are called to be mega pastors or mega church pastors, whatever the case is, but it took one person to reach Billy Graham. It took one person to reach D.L. Muti. And just being there to be one person, to help others find the faith, find the Messiah, find the Savior of the world, Mm -hmm. and then to establish that relationship. So that's one thing. Leonard Ravenhill, I love a lot of his quotes. And uh, those of you that are listening, if you haven't checked him out, I would encourage you to do so. He's just, I don't agree everything theology, but he's a very great and passionate evangelist. So... Well, let's jump right into these questions, and if you're listening to this episode, you're going to need your thinking caps on for this one. Kenneth is going to be getting (laughs) a little deep for us. He's going to be talking about something that, I don't know if you've been trying to pronounce it this entire time off the title, but it's a big word called epistemology. Epistemology. Mm -hmm. So, jumping right into epistemology, Kenneth, how did you get into the epistemological field? All right. Um, first, I'm going to say that I'm going to try to shallow the depths, if you will. I'll try to make it um, as simple as I can. <laughs> Good um, luck. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do okay, but we'll see. Um, but as far as getting into it, uh, it seemed like it was something that was pretty important. Like knowledge seems like what most people are looking for, or they're at least questioning whether other people have it. So most interactions that I've noticed with non-believers center around center around that idea of how do you know so even with myself i had a desire to answer that question so how do i know that i have faith in the right god how how do i know that jesus is who he said he was you know these questions that most people i think of faith probably ask themselves at least once um so i kind of saw myself like saint anselm where he wanted to find that surefire argument for God's existence like that's I wanted to find the exact way we can know something for sure Mm. so definitely so you you sort of alluded to it because not everybody really understands or knows what epistemology is and so it's very interesting to find somebody whose wheelhouse is more focused around epistemology that being said can you let us all know what specifically is epistemology and how does this even relate to Christian apologetics today? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll I'll talk about epistemology first, and then kind of how it relates a little bit, and then I'll go into talking about the views of truth because to me, knowledge is essentially a pursuit of truth. Hmm. Uh, so broadly speaking, epistemology is the study of how we know things. Um, more specifically, it deals with our justification for what we know the structure and limits of knowledge, and the necessary and sufficient conditions for it. So regarding how it relates to apologetics, 
this answer can be kind of different depending on who you're talking to. You know, if you're talking to a classical apologist or a presuppositionalist, that it'll kind of change how they may view it. Um, but for myself, epistemology kind of relates in a foundational sense. And what I mean to say is that apologetics, um, as, it's, as I understand it, which is faith-seeking understanding, um, stands on this idea of knowing because that's the only way we'll argue for something. You know, typically you don't find people arguing for things that they know nothing about, or at least they <laughs> think they know something about it, right? Yeah. Um, but with that said, whether you study it in a technical sense, so deeply philosophical, or just as a, a lay person in the church, because I'm, as you study theology, epistemology is something that you look at when you study theology as well. Um, and so if you're seeking truth, that's, that's epistemology. Or if you're saying, this is how I know this to be true, that's, that's epistemology, um, even if you don't call it that. Uh, so the views of truth, there's, there's typically three um, that you'll see mentioned, at least in, in most publications. And these can kind of have variations, and they can be a little different. But the first one is the correspondence view of truth. And this view basically just states that truth is what corresponds or matches with what we see in reality. So if something doesn't match with reality, then that thing's determined to be false. The next one, which does have variations in it, is the coherence view. And this view just holds that all the things that you believe cohere or mesh together. Um, you could think of it as like a web of beliefs. So if all of the beliefs inside your web are coherent, then what you believe is true. So you could imagine that you hold a specified set of propositions or informational truth, let's say. And so long as each proposition individually coheres to that set of propositions, then what you believe is true. Um, and like I said, there are differing versions of this view, but you know, this is just kind of a, a summation of the over, you know, overarching theme within that view. Right. Uh, yeah. And the pragmatic view, uh, this view holds something is true um, if it possesses practical use. So this is a view of utility. So when I think of evolution um, and how it stresses the survival of a species, this view of truth fits really nicely. Uh, so it may be useful for someone to believe something is true because it increases their survivability or the propagation of their DNA. So something's true if it's useful and then something's false if it isn't. Awesome. Awesome. That was pretty deep. <clears throat> you know, f from hearing what you were saying with regards to epistemology, it really seems like, just to encapsulate it, it's more about truth-seeking and really determining mm -hmm. what we know to be true and how are we able to even determine that. Now, that that word epistemology is a little different from, it's one of the view arguments that people can use as far as God's existence, I believe it was one of uh, Aquinas' five. And another one is the argument from ontology. Could you explain what the difference is between epistemology and ontology? So ontology, and I will say outrightly that I am not a professional philosopher. So I've studied philosophy and apologetics because they're kind of, you know, yeah, two disciplines that are married. Yeah, there are two two disciplines that go together very well, um, but not classically trained. 
but ontology as i understand it is the study of being or what there is so ontology is a type of metaphysic whereas epistemology is its own branch and it's kind of looking at knowledge it's what we know or our justification for it and the standard model right now um, for epistemology is the JTB model which is the justified true belief and that's how you know you have knowledge if it's justified if it's true and if you believe it um, but we could say that these two things epistemology and ontology are linked because once you say what there is you'll have to defend how you know that that's the case so just like, like any worldview system the goal is to be philosophically sound um, obviously postmodernists wouldn't care about that but to be taken seriously as a viable option then you know all of these areas of philosophy need to come together coherently and that's you know why we have these debates or talks about you know this metaphysic or this epistemology or this ontology and all that stuff so you used a word that a lot of people uh, get defensive about and I don't know why but I guess before I got into apologetics I was really defensive with this word too but I like how you, how you used a synonym uh, debates people tend to have a negative connotation with that word or even yeah. mm -hmm. uh, the word of argument or arguing they think it's a negative concept when really it's just giving a defense and so you know a lot of times like you said with the debates really it's just talking it's bouncing ideas off each other proverbs 27 17 iron sharpens iron things like mm -hmm. that yeah so sure. next question i'd have for you is in seeking the study of just how we get knowledge knowledge acquisition you know how do you see evolutionary theories attempting to find the answer and then uh what are some of their answers and are they logical okay um so i'm obviously not a scientist either so i'm just going to talk about it generally you know i'm not going to try to to talk about specific evolutionary theories of knowledge mm -hmm. i'm just going to talk about it generally just so uh, some biologist doesn't come on here and, you know, tear me to shreds because I don't. <laughs> <It's all laughs> but yeah, no. But uh, since since evolution is about survival, uh, knowledge will center around what propagates this idea the best. So, you know, increasing the survivability of the creature, uh, or I'm sorry. So knowledge would simply be whatever instinct has displayed the best result uh, insofar as increasing the survivability of the creature that has it right so whatever knowledge helps a creature survive the best that's going to be what you know they view as what true knowledge is so obviously the creature that has the best survival knowledge will be the one to propagate its dna uh, the major problem i see is it's a really relative set of knowledge um, it's perspective based in a way all knowledge is kind of that way um, but there wouldn't be any overarching above all creatures type of knowledge something that could be objectively known for everybody um, so the knowledge that may increase the survivability in one creature may not do the same in another uh, for example so let's say a lion has learned the best way to acquire food, which would be a survivability factor, was to prowl and ambush prey as opposed to stalking out in the open. Uh, this works for the lion and other similar animals, and it does so within that environment. 
Um, but this method would not be so good for, say, a field mouse, because if it sits too long in the grass, it'll be attacked by a snake, and then it's dead. Hmm. Uh, but now, my example isn't perfect, but it points out that the, the knowledge under evolutionary theory, as I understand it, would be really limited in its scope. So there's nothing in my mind that makes this idea illogical. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's not philosophically incoherent or anything like that, but it does limit the scope of knowledge or what knowledge is or what it can be. Um, it also makes our knowledge base subjective, which means that there's nothing that can be collectively agreed upon mm -hmm. uh, in any objective sense. You know, you may have a, a group over here you know some cultural group over here that agrees on a set of knowledge and then another group may have a different set and they collectively agree as a group but they may not collectively agree as a agree as a species is kind of what i'm going so each mm -hmm. species will have a different set of knowledge uh, that's applicable to them so i would call it you know a species centric type of knowledge if you will hmm. awesome now when we're talking about epistemology and one of the big things about Christian apologetics is what does God say about this stuff? And so I would like to ask the question, does the Bible God reveal anything about epistemology and, and how it came about? What's, what are its origins? And if so, where and what does God have to say about epistemology? Right. Yes. I, I think I thought about this one a little bit uh, knowledge is first mentioned in Genesis just before the fall of man that's chronologically where the first uh, usage of the word knowledge happens and that's God said do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil now this is moral knowledge but obviously moral knowledge is imp important um, but I think the point here is that once we have moral knowledge we're responsible for it as far as knowledge or epistemology and its origins found in the Bible, I think the fact that it lays out that God created the universe and it's orderly and it's good, then I think it's generally implied that we can know things about it. Uh, since we are created in God's image and God has rational capacities, uh, then we too have rational capacities to some degree so generally speaking, I would say knowledge is kind of peppered throughout Scripture. Uh, a couple verses, the first one that kind of comes to mind is Proverbs 1.7. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the Hebrew word for knowledge here is da'at, which includes intellectual and experiential knowledge. So it's, it's both the mind and the heart, if you will. Uh, Isaiah 118, this is one of my favorites, it says, just come, let us reason together. So we're not just a bunch of blind idiots stumbling around in the dark. We're supposed to think through the things that we see and experience, think through God, think through Christ and all of these things. Um, so it seems God desires us to use our rational side. Um, also something really interesting uh, that I really like is what Jesus said in John 14:6, And Jesus said, uh, that I am the way, the truth, because knowledge is a pursuit of truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Christ said he is the truth. And I think 
That is to say, he is God's truth to mankind so that we may be saved through that knowledge of him. And uh, recently, I was reading something by J.I. Packer. Uh, this is about general revelation, and it's from his uh, Concise Theology book. I thought it kind of fit uh, because, you know, we're talking about knowledge, uh, how we get it and all of that stuff. And general revelation is kind of God's natural knowledge to us so that we wouldn't be without excuse. So I think what he says is pretty interesting. Uh, he said general revelation is so-called because everyone receives it just by virtue of being alive in God's world. This has been so from the start of human history. God actively discloses these aspects of himself to all human beings so that ev in every case failure to thank and serve the creator in righteousness is sin against knowledge and denials of having received this knowledge should not be taken seriously God's universal revelation of his power praiseworthiness and moral claim is the basis of Paul's indictment of the whole human race as sinful and guilty before God for failing to serve him as we should and obviously the Paul reference is from Romans 118 to 319 so I thought that fit uh, really well definitely as far as you know I'm glad you brought up general revelation because immediately I think of a few passages in scripture uh, first you know one where it says I believe it's in Psalm 14 that the fool has said in his heart there is no God uh, but yet regarding general revelation one of my favorite verses is Psalm 19 where the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork and that that general revelation is given out day to day and night to night to point people towards himself. And then you talk a little bit about Paul in Romans 1, but Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, he says that everybody has law written on our hearts and our conscience mm -hmm. bears witness as well. And so the general revelation that everybody has of God is definitely there. So glad you brought that point up as well. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that... Uh, I like to get into not really debates about or arguments just to pick people's minds. Uh, I had a post on one of the apologetic groups too is something called absolute or objective truth. And I know there's a bit of a nuance and difference between the two terms, but do you could you explain what is absolute truth and do you believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth? And if so, why or why not? But if you do believe there's absolute truth, could you explain whether it could be created or discovered? Yeah. So interesting thing is uh, my thesis for my master's degree was called On Truth, <laughs> uh, ironic enough. Uh, but uh, I, I distinguish between two versions or two uh, applicable truths that you can find in the world, I, I wouldn't call it absolute truth. Okay. Uh, I say universal truths, mm -hmm. meaning they're truths that cover everything, everywhere, all the time. It's Somebody might say that that means the same thing. But I would say yes, that universal truths exist. Um, first, it's kind of obvious, if we say that universal truths do not exist, there's a logical problem. So when you say there are no universal truths, you're stating a universal truth. I mean, I, I think that's been pointed out by every apologist ever. 
Yeah. <laughs> but it's good to bring up time and time again. Keto yeah, well, learning yeah. is repetition. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So <laughs> if there are only preferential truths or subjective truths, uh, but we make a claim that seeks to stand in relation to all peoples, it's no longer a preferential truth. It, you're moving it into the universal claim category. Or, you know, as the lay person might call it, it's a self-defeating idea. Um, secondly, if universal truths of some kind did not exist, it would make functioning or learning anything about reality nearly impossible. So if we say that only preferential truths exist, then reality would simply be each individual person's view and reality would not, in essence, exist. Does that make sense? It totally does. I mean, especially okay. when you look at mathematics. I mean, if I think one plus one is two and you think one plus one is four, we're going to have a, a problem, you know? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, it's just, you could just... the a way to visualize it you could think of a bunch of individual bubbles within space they're all in the same collective area but they're still in their own little bubble they have their own space and these things never come together to form a whole they're just floating around bumping into each other but never you can't explain the whole of reality by describing one little bubble hmm. you know what i mean but as far as is it created or discovered? I would say it's both. Um, and let me explain first before uh -huh. you get judgmental. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> this is your time. This is your time. No yeah. no, yeah. I would say it's created in the sense that I believe God, the creator, has established through his nature the structure of reality. So for us as people or created things, the universal truths are discovered by our finding them in the orderly universe and within the moral landscape. So let me say that if universal truths did not exist, science would be a pointless endeavor since nothing about reality uh, could be known outside of an individual because science seeks to discover truths that govern how all people interact with physical reality. So. No, I, no, I wasn't gonna <laughs> jump on you or judgment or anything. I totally understood where you were going with the creation of it and everything, and I'm glad you actually brought that point up because, with all of this being a reflection of God's essence or nature, that's actually one of the keys to understanding what some people may not never have heard of before, called the omnipotence paradox. Hmm. Is atheists love to use this and try to checkmate a Christian and say, okay. Would you say God is omnipotent? Does Can God do anything he wants? Yes, okay. Well, can God make a rock so heavy he can lift it? And it seems no matter how the Christian answers that question, no, he can't, or yes, he can, that he can't lift it, that we're checkmated. But once we understand this thing about the universal truth and it being a reflection of God's nature, his essence, it's totally, it's a lot easier to understand that seemingly uh, paradox by all of it being stemmed from laws of logic. Yes. So there's going to be another episode coming out on that. So stay tuned on that. So if you're curious, just pay attention to the podcast. So excellent. Thank yeah. you for answering that. Uh, next question I have for you. A part of apologetics, 
whether it's Christian apologetics or atheistic apologetics, yes, there is atheist apologetics for any of you that are listening. Yes, uh, one of the key things is arguing and formulating an argument. And we see it all the time. There's so many logical fallacies on campaignings or just day-to-day conversations that we use. Mm-hmm. Could you explain how do we create a logical argument and what are some main fallacies that you're aware of that we should be cautious of? Okay, so probably the simplest way to go in about constructing an argument is by syllogism, and probably William Lane Craig is the best example of, of this, or really any philosopher. If you've read philosophy texts, they usually have a syllogism, and all that means is you have a set of premises that lead to a conclusion, um, usually deductively. <clears throat> so, i.e., you know, premise one, then premise two, and then the conclusion follows necessarily from those. So basically you state the premise and then you have to give evidence for why that premise is true. Same thing for all your premises. And then if they're all true, the conclusion necessarily follows from that. Um, Now, I don't personally construct arguments this way. I see a problem and then I think about how I can answer this problem in a coherent way. So I try to formulate an idea that runs counter to the objection and then see if I can make it fit together and then answer that objection. Or stated differently, I ensure that my answer is logically consistent with itself, that it's empirically adequate or there's evidence or justification for it and that it's experientially relevant and then that may sound uh familiar because ravi zacharias uh uses that (laughs) so (laughs) but so fallacies they can get real technical generally speaking i i view it as like a professional philosopher problem Um, obviously lay people can commit fallacies and regularly do um so you you want to avoid some but some of the fallacies can get really obscure um but a big one that i would maybe um say hey watch out for this is begging the question or known simply as circular reasonings basically you submit a proposition or a set of premises and a conclusion but the only reason you believe the premises is because you believe the conclusion is already true so you're the only reason that you're arguing for the points above the conclusion is because you believe the conclusion is true as a it's you could look at it as it your conclusion is your justification for your premises <clears throat> um excuse me let's take a drink of my water <laughs> there you go <clears throat> um another one to be aware of would be the appeal to authority um this is really simple. Uh, all you're saying is that some proposition is true because some expert says it is. So the proposition the proposition could even be true, right? The information could be true, but if your justification for it is only on the basis of some authority speaking and saying that it's true, that's an appeal to authority. Um, I'll give two more, and one of them I love because I've seen it so many times, or... <laughs> I've seen a YouTube atheist accuse Christians of doing this many times, so I I, I think it's funny. Um, So first is the straw man. 
Um, this is simply taking the weakest form of someone's position or argument and then formulating your response to it based on that weaker version. So to me, when you do this, all you're saying is, um, I can't answer your actual argument, so I'm going to take on the little guy. Uh, so my favorite is the fallacy of equivocation. And like I said, this is one that I've heard a lot from YouTube atheists uh, about apologetic arguments. But this fallacy simply is just using some ambiguous term and then defining that term differently in each premise. So you make your argument misleading. So an example would be premise one. The priest told me I should have faith. Premise two, I have faith my son will do good in school this year. Conclusion, therefore, the priest should be happy with me. So faith here has two different connotations. One is in a religious sense. The others in a performance sense. So you can see how that argument is misleading and how the conclusion just it doesn't make sense based on those premises. Uh, so if you're looking for a good source, everybody listening, uh, for logical fallacies, I recommend Logically Fallacious by Bo Bennett. Um, the, the good thing about this book is he's not a theist, so some of his examples are against Christian arguments, but he makes the fallacies really simple to understand, and you get an outside perspective on many Christian arguments, so I think it can be uh, good and edifying in that sense. Oh, definitely. I mean, always trying to learn the opposition's arguments would just better equip a Christian to know how to respond in advance. You know, one of the logical arguments, I've seen it on a meme before. I've even had, had it as my profile picture. And this is a clear example on how not to make a logical argument. But it has two premises and a conclusion. Premise one, unicorns are awesome. Premise two, I am awesome. Therefore, conclusion, I am a unicorn. And I just, I love using that example as far as an illogical argument because the premises don't tie, while the premises are true, the conclusion is clearly false. And so, I don't know. I, I question premise two. I am awesome. Well, you get to know me a little more. <laughs> but when you were talking about logical fallacies, you know, one that I want to bring up as well is it's one that's not very well known to a lot of people and it's called the no true Scotsman fallacy and basically while there may be a couple different variations or nuances to this fallacy the whole idea of this fallacy is saying so-and-so can't exist or so-and-so can't be true because if so this wouldn't have happened for instance God can't exist because children die of cancer no real God would allow kids to die of cancer. Mm -hmm. And while that may sound like a legitimate argument, especially when you're trying to argue against God's omnipotence and God's benevolence, but mm -hmm. that is not a logical or sound argument because there's many different things that have to go into the role of theodicy and why does God or how does God allow evil in the world? And so by saying Christianity isn't true because no Christian ever does X, Y, or Z, or all Christians do this, uh, no true Scotsman is a form of that fallacy as well. So whenever you hear somebody say, oh, God doesn't exist and I can prove it because no God would really do this, that's a fallacious yeah. argument as well. So yeah. moving past uh, fallacies, and, and we sort of talked about forming arguments, 
Could you give some common arguments for God's existence? Uh, yeah, so I'm not going to go in depth here because there's so many uh, arguments for God's existence that we could probably spend just a week every day breaking down one or two of them each episode, <laughs> to be honest. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll, I forget how many I, I wrote down. Three. I just, I'm going to talk about three. Uh, so if you want to expound upon them, we can. Uh, if you just want to kind of leave it and let the listeners, you know, steep on these a little while, that'd be fine too. But my personal favorite is the ontological argument. So in its modal form, it goes like this. So premise one, God is defined as a maximally great or perfect being. Premise two, the existence of a perfect being is either impossible or necessary since it cannot be contingent. Premise three, the concept of a per uh, perfect being is not impossible since it is neither not nonsensical nor self-contradictory. Four, therefore, a perfect being is necessary. Five, therefore, a perfect being exists. Um, a lot of people view this argument as kind of silly and kind of initially it seems that way. So you're saying, oh, because God is a maximally great or perfect being, he must exist. But I think there's some philosophical nuance with this one because you're, you're saying if a perfect or maximally great being existed, it would have to be impossible or necessary. There's no middle ground. He either can't exist or he has to exist. So hmm. I just loved how this argument kind of formulates that. And it actually started with Anselm. He was the one who developed this argument. And then other people have tweaked it um, throughout the years. But I love that. I love that argument. <laughs> um, another one is the Kalam cosmological argument. So it goes like this. Premise one. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. So if you notice, this argument is really theologically neutral. Uh, you know, that's not saying God exists or, you know, God this. It's just saying if something begins to exist, it has a cause. The universe began to exist, so it must have a cause. So the conclusion follows from those premises, the first premise should be of little disagreement, since in all of our experience and observation tells us that anything that begins to exist has a cause. We've never seen things just pop into existence without some explanation of why it was here or without having some sort of cause. So the premise that will more than likely be attacked is the idea that the universe had a beginning. But the good thing here is that we have scientific evidence to suggest the universe did begin to exist. So all space, all time, all matter uh, began at the Big Bang. And that is the consensus, is Big Bang cosmology is the consensus in the scientific community as the best, ex, uh, best model, right? And Dr. Turek uh, actually says something that I really like regarding the Big Bang. He's, he likes to say, yeah, the Big Bang happened, but we know who banged it. <laughs> so I always, I always love that. So the only way out of accepting this premise is that you have to say that the universe has always existed, but then you run into the problem of an infinite regress. Uh, if the universe is infinite into the past, 
the present moment could have never been reached. So <laughs> at what point in time would we have reached the present moment? It would be impossible, philosophically. Uh, also, thermodynamics tells us that the universe is running out of usable energy. So if the universe is infinite into the past, the universe would have already ran out of all of this usable energy by now, and we would have reached heat death, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's it's a I think that's a pretty powerful argument. Uh, again, it's not a specific argument for the Christian God, but generally most apologists take the cumulative case where you string together these arguments. Uh, and it, nothing stands or falls on one argument, but the collection makes a pretty substantial argument. Uh, lastly, I'll talk about the moral argument, and this one's probably the most effective, at least nowadays. Uh, so premise one, if a personal God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values do exist. Conclusion, therefore, a personal God exists. So this is a really simple but powerful argument. Uh, what this argument is suggesting is that without some transcendent personal being, there is no basis for moral values. Basically, God is the ontological basis for our moral values. Um, so if, we, if God did not exist, there is no basis for saying that anything in particular is wrong. So the reason for this is because there is no standard outside of other people to suggest that anything is wrong. So example, one culture may say that it is wrong to kill babies, but another culture may think killing babies or sacrificing their children to a local deity is perfectly acceptable. But I think we can all agree that killing a baby is wrong no matter the circumstance. Um, so where's this idea come from? It cannot come from people because we are all ontologically the same. We are contingent beings that really only have authority over our own existence. So if that's the case, then it is just a bunch of individual realities meeting each other, but each reality has no effect on the other. And many atheists through time have recognized the fact that if God didn't exist, everything is permissible. Yeah, that's one of the ones that I really focus on as well. And <clears throat> sort of like you were talking about earlier is not one single one of these arguments really proves the Christian God. And, and that's one thing that some people fail to realize. What these arguments do is provide the necessity of a being, of a deity, of a God, of an intelligence, if you will, something to make it go bang. <laughs> And so they each build upon another and you have sort of like circumstantial evidence and a preponderance of evidence. I, I don't remember who said it uh, and I may not have the quote perfectly accurate, but I love the saying where it says God has given enough light for those seeking him to find him, but also for those who are not seeking him to miss him. Yeah, so the Blaise same Pascal. light, is that who that was? Yeah, Blaise Pascal. That light's there for everybody. The general revelation, it's the conscience that bears witness. But if we're not seeking and trying to find him, then he's not going to impose his will upon us. So, mm -hmm. and like I said, they don't argue the Christian God, and we're going to get there here in a minute. But talking about, you, you mentioned thermodynamics, and that was a good segue to this next one. 
talking about scientific laws, law of gravity, which flat earth people, they deny and everything. I, I'm sorry, I got a, <laughs> I got a thing for flat earthers. I got some buddies that uh, believe in that. We go back and forth. But law of gravity, law of first, second, thermodynamics, law of entropy, things like that. Uh, could they evolve or must they have been created by someone or something and why or why not? Okay, so I always like to point out what I'm not. I'm not a scientist. I've already stated that. <laughs> but um, it seems for science to be at all effective or meaningful to anyone, scientific laws must be discovered. Now, obviously, with our limited understanding and knowledge of these laws, our descriptions of them, so our descriptions of them can evolve and become closer at describing what reality is. So, but that's just it. All we are doing is refining our explanation of these scientific laws, but we are not actually defining them. Uh, could you imagine if it were the case uh, that our universe was governed by the definitions given to them by people and they operated, all of our uh, scientific laws operated on the definitions given to them by people? We would live in a chaotic universe. So these scientific laws are grounded in God's essential nature and creative genius. And we as people learn about them through our rational fac faculties and through our observation. Um, I can't see any reason uh, there would be a sufficient, at least for me, a sufficient naturalistic explanation for why these laws exist. <clears throat> Sorry, I couldn't speak for a minute there. Awesome. You know, when we were talking about scientific laws and everything, the one thing that I really focus on is really the scientific method. You know, testable, observable, repeatable. And scientists, whether theistic or secular scientists, you know, it's interesting because they have to presuppose and they have to assume the consistency of scientific laws when they perform these methods. Yep. And therefore, all scientists, whether they want to admit it or not, they all exhibit faith. Faith isn't something unique to the Christian or to any religion. You and I and anybody listening to this episode right now, we exhibit faith every day, whether you sit in a chair, whether you go start your car because you trust it's going to get you somewhere, or you go to work because you trust you're going to get paid by the employer. Mm -hmm. Whereas the new atheists will argue against faith and everything. Uh, even some Christians will argue that we have a blind faith but even like, I forget who had mentioned it, no. uh, the faith that somebody has to propose to, a, to an individual and to marry an individual, that is not blind faith. That is faith based upon experience and evidence. And they're saying, you know what, based on my experience, my evidence of us being together, I'm putting my faith in this relationship of us going to last for till death do us part. And so faith mm -hmm. is something that's definitely not unique to the Christian or to religion. Faith is something that everybody, whether you want to admit it or not, has to exhibit on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. So, talking about scientific laws, are there any laws that you believe are the strongest evidence of a designer? Um, so, evolution aside, uh, I think it is important to go back to the beginning. Uh, it seems that it is generally accepted as a fact of science that the universe had a beginning. And to me, that in and of itself at least in my mind, is strong evidence that there's a designer. Mm -hmm. 
So the reason I say this is because for the universe to come into being, there must have been something to bring this about, to do this at some point in time as opposed to another. It seems to me that there needs to be some personal cause that can decide the when or to decide at all. But set that aside because many, especially non-believers, will probably think that a moot or silly point. Uh, let's give one. Uh, the strong nuclear force is one. That is pretty interesting. Um, and it is just one of over 100 physical constants and laws that have been finely tuned for life. And this is from <laughs> John Barrow and Frank Tipler. Uh, who wrote the Anthropic Cosmological Principle. So these, mm -hmm. they're cosmologists or uh, a physicist. Uh, basically, the strong force is what holds uh, protons and neutrons together and then makes our periodic table possible. So if the strong nuclear force were different to whatever percentage point, I don't know it exactly what it is, uh, it would, it, we basically couldn't have any of the elements right or we definitely wouldn't have most of them uh i think the fact that we can make predictions about how things function and how things will progress forward and develop seems to be a strong indicator that there is some sort of design hmm. uh if things in our universe or here on earth were made through random undirected processes that's that that's the key words that i think people need to focus on is the uh, based on random undirected processes how could we make any predictions or formulations on that randomness mm -hmm. it does not seem like we would be able to come to reliable conclusions if there were if there was no order and i think most scientists like you said conduct their work based on this assumption that we can make reliable predictions and conclusions about our universe and it's because it is orderly so you just have to explain why it's orderly yeah. yeah, and you talked a little bit about the anthropic principle and everything, and uh, I love looking at that with the uh, the fine-tuning argument and just really understanding the anthropic principle, fine-tuning that life is sustained because of just the perfect precision. Another area as far as design is concerned is what's called the Goldilocks zone. The Goldilocks zone is driven from... Obviously, the, yes. the little yep. story of Mama Bear, Papa Bear, and, and Baby Bear in that Earth is placed in a position just at the perfect location to have habitable life. And again, I just, I just don't like the odds. I don't like the laws of probability by saying this was all just random, unguided, undirected chances. And then when you look at specified complexity yep. or reducible complexity, you just look at the design aspect of people. There's just way too many. But Kent Hovind had pointed out, and I looked into this, uh, the scientific law, the law of angular momentum. And for those that may not be familiar with this, law of angular momentum, think of it like this, is if you have a spinning top or like a dreidel, and you spin the dreidel, the dreidel is going to be spinning clockwise or counterclockwise, however you spin it, whether you're right-handed or left-handed. It's going to stay going in that direction, that motion, until it's acted upon by an outside force, an external force. What Kent Hovind, again, he's, he's a teacher. He's not an astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. But one thing he points out, and I think I've researched this too in the past, there are galaxies that are spinning in opposite directions. And so one thing he looks at, and I want to say there's planets with moons in different orbits as well. 
yes. is if everything started with a bang, then everything should have maintained the same momentum, the same clockwise, counterclockwise, unless an external force had caused it to re, you know, change its momentum. And so when he was asked the question, why do you think they spin in opposite directions? It was like, well, just so that people see how stupid the atheist argument is. <laughs> so I don't know. I just, you know, that's one thing that I thought of and everything else. Kent Hovind, I don't, again, I don't agree with everything, but he's got some yeah. really strong arguments as far as creationism is concerned. But yeah, I, uh, something else to point out, you mentioned, in the Goldilocks zone, just yeah. for anybody who doesn't know, this is a, a general term to describe where conditions are just right for life to exist or life to potentially exist. And this just isn't in the Milky Way galaxy. So uh, with uh, every planet or every star that has planets that orbit has a Goldilocks zone around that star. And then within each galaxy, there's a Goldilocks zone within that galaxy. So where life could actually develop and exist within you know, a, a galaxy. So you have to fall within a certain spot on a galaxy. You have to fall within a certain spot around uh, a partic particular star. So, I mean, it, it can get pretty in depth as far as that goes, but there's a lot to it. Yeah. Like we were talking about with moral arguments and even scientific laws, just knowing that there's a designer isn't enough. So how can we move from deism, going from atheism to agnosticism, then to deism, to theism, and then finally to Christianity. Because if we're going out there just doing apologetics just to tell people that God exists, if we don't tell them who God is and God's purpose and their need for salvation through the bloodshed of Christ, it's all futile. So how do we go from showing there's a designer and moving from deism to Christianity? All right, so now deism and theism... Uh are very close, but I assume that you're asking how does one move from thinking that there's a being just being out there to one that's involved and to one right. that loves More and desires and everything. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, I think it's important to note that any true seeker of truth will need time to evaluate what, what they are learning. Um, if they are actually, and like I said, if seeker, um, or any true seeker of truth, they'll just need time to evaluate what they're learning. And they'll need a patient and prayerful friend. Um, uh, so for, for many people, the switch runs much deeper than just simply intellect. Uh, it's experiential as well. So when I think about it, I always stress defending one's faith with gentleness and respect. Um, because that's how... That's how people from the outside will know that we're followers of Christ. It'll be based on how we love each other. Mm -hmm. So I think we yep. need to display that towards them as well. Um, but I know you're probably wanting to hear like logical steps, like step one, step two, right? Whatever you'd like, <laughs> but, whatever you'd like to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So moving from deism to theism, I think mm -hmm. it's just going to take some time to think yeah. through the conclusions that follow from having a creative but disconnected being just out there. So in my mind, if this were the case, the problem of evil would be much worse than it is, among other things, just personally. If there wasn't a personal God intervening uh, throughout history, I think the problem of evil would be a much bigger problem of evil. 
personally. Uh, I don't know who would agree with me on that, but that seems to follow. If God was disconnected, evil would be pretty crummy. Because he um, has his hand on a lot of things, and he does prevent a lot. Yes, I completely agree. So, um, now, moving from theism to Christianity, I, th I think the only way that that's going to happen is Christ. So if we can show that what he taught was true and beneficial and show that he indeed rose from the dead, then there seems to be very little reason to remain on the outside of Christian theism at that point. Mm. So I like uh, Paul even talks about how everything hangs on the resurrection. Um, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is futile. Mm -hmm. So I think the evidence for the resurrection is very good. And uh, one of my professors, Dr. Habermas, uh, he's supposed to be coming out with a very, very comprehensive series on the resurrection. Hopefully soon. Um, I think he said when it was up to 5,000 pages. Oh, wow. <laughs> and those of you who don't um, know, yeah, Gary Habermas is uh he's considered the leading foremost uh knowledge bank of the resurrection of christ yeah he's a yeah. liberty grad professor you said yes oh yeah. sorry i didn't so, mean to cut I, you off oh no you're good i was i was done i was just gonna say uh hopefully that comes out soon and i was gonna say that he has written extensively on the resurrection and the the shroud of turin because that's a side interest of his but primarily uh he's a expert scholar in the resurrection so that should be super good and it's he also said that this uh new um series i don't know if it's going to be a single volume that'd be a super thick book but uh, <laughs> <laughs> he said it's it contains all new information so even oh, wow. with the stuff he's already written yeah. it contains new information in it so it wonder if good. he just changed spelling variants <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I can only imagine how thick that would be because I got a book by Dr. Arnold Fruitenbaum called Israelology, and it was his dissertation. It's like 700 pages, and it's a thick book. And that's like in 10-pitch font. Oh, my goodness. So I could only imagine what that's going to be. But definitely uh, can never be too equipped. Now, the next question, is, one of my favorite apologists is, and you mentioned him before, is Frank Turek. And one of my favorite quotes that he's, I've heard him say before, uh, when asking or talking to a, you know, an atheist, a secularist, whatever the case is, is really when we're looking at whether it's the Big Bang creation, cosmology, we have to ask ourselves, did matter create mind when we're dealing with the metaphysics and abstract concepts, or did mind create matter? Could you expound a little bit upon that question and really what, did it, what does it really mean? No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, I, I'll try to do my best uh, based on how I understand it, but uh, I think I touched on it a little bit, talking about the beginning of the universe, but uh, it seems that it would require um, a personal being to decide to create at any given time. So typically when we see things happen, especially when they're moving towards some sort of end, um, there is a purpose or, and purpose requires a mind. 
So generally, when I hear him say this, I believe he means to say that if we are simply byproducts of matter, then the thoughts and such that we have going on inside of our brains are nothing more than molecules, physical matter bouncing off of each other. And it'd be hard to defend that our thoughts, which are immaterial, can be deconstructed to just molecules bumping into each other. Um, uh, does it seem more plausible that our thoughts are the result of a transcendent mind that had a purpose? I would, I would think yes. Um, the best indicator that I think minds, uh, that our minds um, are higher than simple molecular, molecular interactions is our ability for intentionality. So intentionality, this just means that we're able to think about something. Um, I think it, it'd be hard to show that molecules possess the ability to think about something or cause us to think about something or that they can intend to do something um, without a mind, right? So I'm talking about strictly the physical part of our brain. How could it think about something or intend to do something without there being an immaterial mind to explain all of that, but uh, either way, I think it's per it's definitely something interesting to, to think about. You know, discussion of the mind, which is a uh, J.P. Moreland's uh, kind of special area. Yeah, I love that <clears throat> quote of his and everything. Like you were talking about, when I hear this, and if I remember from listening to him and how he presents it and everything, is when you're really dealing with the abstract concepts and whatnot, and you talked about like the immaterialness, just even things like mathematics. I mean, we, we can't touch math. We can't touch numbers. We can yeah. represent them with symbols. Yeah. However, those symbols change depending on what country you're in. So I just got back from the desert and the deployment, and their numbers look totally different from ours. Their yeah, zeros yes. is just a dot, where our zero is like an oval. And so while the symbols, the figures are different, still, if they were to add one plus one in the desert and we add one plus, it's still the same. And that's that metaphysical immaterial property that I don't see how any naturalistic method could create that, nor the concepts of how do we feel, how do we love, the emotions. If really our brains are just based upon chemical reactions, certainly not a good position for epistemology in the whole episode here, because if we're trying to base our knowledge centered around understanding that our brain and our reactions are just based on dancing to the music and the chemicals in our brain then it's all random it's it's all chance and now we re really can't even trust anything because we have no solid uh ground to stand on yeah. and so that's one thing i love about frank tour it's just one of those questions where it piques a curiosity it just allows someone to go hmm you know how can the physical create the immaterial yes and and it's just fascinating, just quick question. Yeah, and I, uh, I think one of the big problems in this area is that, uh, especially neuroscientists, they correlate mental states with brain states. Uh, mm -hmm. So they, they go, okay, so the brain is doing this and you are experiencing uh, emotion X. So emotion X can be explained by having this particular neural structuring in your brain, mm -hmm. which, yes, it makes sense to a degree, but you still have the immaterial aspect about it. And I like the example of, 
you have you you have, you have mental states and you have brain states. Uh, your brain or your body is like a piano, and your soul is like the pianist. So if you have a fully functioning piano, the pianist can make beautiful music. If you have a broken piano, or you know somebody has a brain injury or something like that, the the pianist is only going to be able to produce a certain quality of music and i think that's something that i should probably look into more study more deeply just uh, the correlation between uh, our mental states and our brain states just in that sense i think it's really interesting but that's fascinating like you were saying you know neuroscientists will go ahead and look at and try to pinpoint a location of the brain or a stimuli or a behavioral effect that allows a portion of the brain to light up and respond yeah. but even with that you know, a lot of times, like if, if I were to ask the audience right now to just picture a pink elephant sitting in a tree, right? I almost guarantee that everybody's naturally thought of and imagined a pink elephant. Already now, did. where where did that image come from? You know, and how can the mind and the stimuli of the brain create an image, a vivid image at that? Uh, and that's just another aspect of the mind or the matter type deal. It's just, it's fascinating to me. Yes. I'm sorry. What do you think your strongest, or not yours, but what do you think the strongest objections that come from atheists? What are some of their strong objections that you've come across? And, you know, how could we respond to some of those and have an answer? Uh, yeah, no, no problem. Uh, if, if I may be coy. Um... <laughs> okay, you can be coy. I'm going to be Brent, okay? That's fine. <laughs> I, I have found that uh, nothing uh, provided has been a powerhouse shot at Christian belief. Um, I've been stumped in the moment because I'm not perfect, obviously. Uh, so it's been difficult to find an appropriate answer on the spot because maybe I don't know enough about the subject or maybe I'm just remembering something incorrectly. But usually given some depth of thought or some time, I can usually come up with uh, – a suitable or reasonable answer. I think probably the most frustrating thing that I've encountered, however, is the fact, and this is just one thing, but uh, many times people that I've interacted with deny Christ um, was who he said he was, or they even deny Christ ever existed. Um, and the justification for this belief is that they say the church has controlled the content of the scriptures and the information about Jesus cannot be trusted <laughs> because it was basically tampered with so the church could make us believe whatever they wanted. Mm. And that is so frustrating to me because the immense conspiracy theory that would have had to take in place for that to be the case is just insane. Right? Mm -hmm. So that makes – you think about it. That makes every manuscript that we have – Every person that has ever analyzed those manuscripts, every place that um, each manuscript is housed, and the span of time that these things were discovered uh, would have had have to have had the church involved completely, not to mention the motive would have had to remain the same since Christ was here. And I'd be hard-pressed to make, uh, make that argument since there was no money, no power, no nothing except death for those early Christians. They had no motivation to to start thinking maybe we'll tamper and just make people believe whatever. So 
the only reason to believe and proclaim that Christ rose from the dead was because you were psychologically ill or it was true. So I cannot see anyone who would try to try and start pro proclaiming something that controversial when there was little to nothing to gain by doing so, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I have argued this point many times over and over again, and it usually comes down to my sources are wrong, uh, and the sources that I use have been manipulated <laughs> by the church and by Constantine. So I don't think it's been difficult objections as opposed to it's, it's more the frustration of the objection uh, it's more about that than the strength of the objection. But just so nobody finds me on Facebook or wherever and tries to start bashing me in, a side <laughs> note, many people do find the problem of evil uh, a strong objection against Christianity. I don't think that it's that strong of an argument. I uh, have written a paper on the problem of evil uh, and formulate my own response to it. Um, so... I only say that so people understand my point of view, but generally the consensus is that the problem of evil poses the biggest biggest issue for Christian belief for sure. Yeah, I would I would probably agree with that too, especially when uh, you argue for a benevolent God. Yes. I think it was uh, Epicurean who has said regarding <clears throat> the evil in the world, is, is God willing but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is God able but not willing? Then he's malevolent and so that's one of the arguments uh, uh the deal with the odyssey the evil in the world yes. uh, but like you said it, it's it's not a entirely difficult one to answer though either especially when you look at just some of the things from free will from mankind to yep. purpose in pain and trials at times like i forget what the the condition is but there's a medical condition to where somebody cannot feel the pain Yes. Uh, whether you put your hand on the burner stove, it's hot, and you'll never know. And so yep. in that sense, pain definitely is a good thing. Pain allows us to realize something's wrong. Something's not right. Something broke. We're estranged, whatever the case is. And it allows us yeah. to seek the cure, the antidote. Yeah. So I, I love what you – what were you saying? Oh, I was going to add to that. Uh, yeah. A quote, uh, obviously being in the military, you'll – you will appreciate and understand fully what I mean by this, but um, uh, it's something I've been saying pretty much since day one uh, when I joined the military. It was a little suffering is good for the soul. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. I can definitely <laughs> test it out with my recent deployment to come back from too. Yeah. You know. You know. One thing I really appreciate uh, about your answer here is. Up front, you you were honest. You you're the fact of saying sometimes there were questions that I didn't know right away. Maybe I didn't have all the information, and that's so key for us as Christians, especially as apologists, to not lose credibility. If we don't know the answer there, that's fine. We don't have to know all the answers. We just have to know who gives the answers. And if there's a question that stumps us, then if we really are bothered by it, then we would go to prayer. We would go to scripture. We'd go to trusted people, uh, people that we trust that are maybe a little smarter than us in an area here or there. But we don't have to think we have to answer everything. Jesus in the New Testament, he didn't answer all, the, all their questions. A lot of times he redirected their questions and asked them. And I'm going to be having an upcoming episode talking about questioning apologetics. 
and we're going to talk about that method. But like you said, as far as the resurrection, one of the strongest evidences as far as the reliability of the New Testament is like Jay Warner Wallace points out. There is no reason for the apostles to create this religion. All it brought them was ostracization, dispersion, persecution, uh, death, martyrdom, things like that. They were perfectly fine as fishermen, uh, tax collector, whatever the case was. Yep. By creating this religion, they brought nothing but pain and death. And the big difference between those apostles and dying for that and the Muslims we see and what we're may be seeing with Iran's incident now, the big difference is the Muslims are dying for something they believe to be true. The apostles died for something they saw visibly in the New Testament, if we were to look at the reliability of it from the eyewitness perspective, yep. totally reveals that the New Testament was not fabricated, touched, or manipulated in any sense, but it truly points to the actual events of the resurrection. And like C.S. Lewis said, at the end of the day, we really got to come to the conclusion of, is Jesus a liar, lunatic, or Lord? Is he a liar and he said he was going to rise and he just did it? Is he a lunatic because he was a crazy guy that thought he was going to rise? Or is he Lord because he truly did rise from the grave? So uh, definitely thank you for bringing up that uh, yeah, resurrection no and the eyewitness accounts. Uh, the final question I have for you, is there anything else that you'd like to actually uh, say regarding epistemology, Christian apologetics, or anything else we discussed? Uh, yeah, so since we were kind of talking about epistemology, um, I kind of looked back over my thesis and I, I figured I would quote a little something from my thesis because uh, it seemed relevant. Uh, so this is what I wrote in a portion of my thesis. So universal truths are those truths that if one were to believe in the opposite, they could not function fully within the real world. So for instance, if one does not believe that mathematical truths are objective or universal, then one would have a very difficult time managing their bank account, purchasing <laughs> items, interacting with time, have trouble traveling, talking about dealing with the time and distance aspects. This is not to say that they would cease to function, but rather they would have a lowered effectiveness within reality. So whereas if one takes the subjective style of truth, then having a certain preference towards something will not necessarily affect one's functionality in a profound way. Based on this fact, it should not be difficult to see how there are categories of truth, and some of these truths are necessarily true, while others are simply contingently true. So by suggesting preferential truths are contingent, this means that they need a subject to make a choice as to which they prefer Universal truths simply do not work this way. So when I was, end quote, so when I was talking about how universal truth and subjective truth function differently just by their own nature. So if universal truths exist, then the closer we hold to those truths or the more truths we have, the more functional we will be within that reality. Hmm. However, the same is not true for subjective truths. If it were the case that reality was subjective, meaning each person has their own truth, then no matter how close we hold to any set of truths, or no matter the amount of truths that we held, it would not affect our functioning within that reality. 
So I think that's an important distinction, that truth is important, and the value of truth needs to be maintained if we are to live consistently with each other and within reality. So that's awesome, man. That is awesome. I appreciate that. Universal yeah. truths, functioning member of society, protective member of society, just within the framework of society. Uh, could you do it if you didn't subscribe to it? Yeah, but like you said, you'd be extremely limited and you'd be late uh, to a lot of yeah. appointments. So <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, I uh, I appreciate that. All this right here is what we were talking about is epistemology. How do we know? How do we gain knowledge? And how do we know truth ultimately? So, Kenneth, I, I just really appreciate you your willingness to be here. Uh, your yes, sir. Let's do it again. Clarity. Definitely, I'm going to have you down. Uh, if you're listening and everything, you're, if you're still with us, because he did talk a lot. But I told him we could talk for like three, four hours. But uh, let me know in the comments below and everything. But definitely, I want to pick your brain about some other stuff as well. And for all you listening out there, I do encourage you to check out his podcast and his blog. Again, uh, Ministry is Conversations Concerning Us. He's got an excellent, excellent episode talking about what's considered the minimal facts for the resurrection of Christ. Basically, what are the facts around the resurrection, the least amount that are well attested by pretty much everybody, if you will, that points to an empty tomb. Yep. So check it out, especially with Easter coming up. Just add that one in your toolkit as far as apologetics is concerned. Know a little bit more of why you believe what you believe and how to defend the Christian faith externally. So as always, I thank you all for checking in. God bless. Thanks for listening. We pray this ministry glorifies God and edifies you, the listener. For more great content, including videos, blogs, newsletters, and a free ebook, check out our website at c4capologetics.weekly.com. You can also email us at c4capologetics at gmail.com with questions or ideas for future episodes. We truly appreciate you. Please like, share, and comment on this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for future episode notifications. Thanks for checking in, and remember to be bold and keep contending for Christ.